So for a long time, we've been in a series called Foundations. And then after that, we were in the Incarnation series, preparing for Christmas. Before that, we were in the Book of Romans. And this week, I want to begin our return to the Book of Romans. And um, I've decided that it was important to provide a summary message to cover what we'd covered so far in chapter one of Romans, which I, I spent a couple of months going through. And I was confirmed in this when I talked to my wife and said, um, so Jen, I'm thinking about doing a recap instead of just jumping right into the next section of Romans. And she said, oh, we were in Romans? <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's been a long time. So I am gonna give us a recap. Um, I'm not going to be engaging in the detail I did. I took two months at least to cover all of chapter one. So if you want to go deeper into some of the verses, the words, the phrases, the theological problems in chapter one, please ask me because we have sermons where I'd spend a whole sermon doing, you know, one or two verses because this is thick, thick stuff. Um, But I also wanted to um, start this morning by framing this whole section with a pretty basic analogy. Because even though we're going back over uh, roads we've treaded before, I really think it's crucially important that we see the big picture of what Paul's been doing. So I've been looking at this chapter in a granule bit by bit fashion. But as I recapped this, I thought we really need to see the big picture here. And I'm not sure that in the granule ways I've treated it, it's, it's equipped you to do that so well. Um, so I wanna use this analogy. Uh, let's say that I was a doctor and I walked into the room this morning and I called out to everybody and I said, men and women of Living Hope Community Church, I have a cure. I have a cure. Thank God I have a cure for the disease called Ledenosia 23. Ledenosia 23, I have a cure. (laughs) You're just like, what? And I said, but it's incredibly contagious. It's airborne. And at this point, you all have it. You'd say, what? And I said, and one of the most terrible things is the effects of Ledonacea 23. It makes you numb to its very symptoms. It's very difficult to even perceive that you have this because of it. But I have the cure. So please take it. Take the cure, please. What would you do? Well, I mean after probably a lot of like, what is the deal with this guy? If you were trying to be careful and kind, you would probably think to yourself, I have two main questions that I really need to answer to deal with this guy, this doctor. Let's say you knew I was a real medical doctor. Okay, so that was, that was helpful for you. But you, you'd have two main questions. You'd say, first, is this disease real and really deadly? Like that's your first question. Is this really, is this a Ledonisia 23? Is it, is, it, is it real? Is it really deadly? I mean, before I put that in my body, whatever that cure he's got is. And then the second question you have, of course, if you figured that first thing out, is you'd ask, is this cure really safe? Is it really effective? Is it gonna be, 
okay for me to take? And does it really do the job that it needs to do? If you think Letanosia 23 is either fake or essentially harmless, you're not going to care much about me running into the room and saying, I have a cure. You're not going to bother with it. You're not going to put something that some doctor is giving you into your body without knowing that there's any need for it, really. But if I could convince you that Letonisia 23 is real, if I could show you x-rays or biopsies of where it's infected you and say, look at that. That is not how a heart should look. That's not how lungs should work. That's not how a pancreas should look. Here's normal pancreas. Look at all your textbooks. I didn't make this up. And you could see all the black spots. And oh, maybe it had, maybe it was like a, I haven't gone too far in this analogy. So <laughs> maybe it was a worm and you could actually see it on the screen. And, and, and if I could help you really start to perceive its symptoms, if I could show you how it's really infecting you. Say, Wait, no, have you seen this though? Have you seen this? You experienced this? And you start to realize, you know, that, that isn't right. I, I have been experiencing those things and those aren't right. I could show you that it really is dangerous. And I could show you how it really is infecting people and how people really are suffering and how hearts are becoming weaker. Lungs are becoming harder. They don't take air in anymore. Don't pump out blood anymore like it's supposed to. And people are on a really bad trajectory. Well, you would begin to reconsider, right? And you'd even begin to care about the cure. And you'd be even be able to see it as, wow, I, this is really crucial. This is perhaps, I really do need this. This, is, this could be life-saving. So this is what Paul is doing. This is what he's doing. As we come back to Romans, it's important to understand the big picture of what he's doing. Because this is a really hard section. And we've only covered chapter one. Chapter two is going to be hard. Half of chapter three is going to be hard. It's full of heavy and frank and jarring assessments of humanity. It's full of pictures of God that are uncomfortable. On their own, we don't get to the second part of Romans 3 and 4 and 5 and 6 and 7 where things really, really start to go upward. Where we see the beauty of the cure. If we just look at this section, it's just really troubling. It's unpleasant. It's discouraging on its own. But Paul and the Holy Spirit are not trying to be mean. They're not trying to be oppressive. They're not trying to be arbitrarily discouraging. The Lord is, and through Paul, if I may put it this way, desperate. That mankind understand how desperate mankind's disease is. His spiritual disease. And he's doing that not to discourage us and leave us hopeless. But so that we would value and believe in and embrace and treasure the cure. Paul is trying to convince us that the human race is suffering from a deadly spiritual illness. It's not called Letonisia 23. It's called God's wrath on the unrighteous. 
and that we need a vaccine called the righteousness from God. So that's what I'm going to talk about this morning. The cure, the disease, the effects, and our hope. And as I was preparing this message and I went through it again, this recap, I thought, you know, let's come back at the end to communion. Let's take a tangible sign in our hands and our miles of the cure that we've been given because it is not smooth terrain we're in. So I just want to encourage you, exhort you, appeal to you, and ask the Lord as Luke prayed that the Lord would really help us be be open to see and consider this diagnosis that he gives us. Having said all that, I'm going to try to work through these passages again um, as efficiently as I can so that we don't stay here for an hour. May the Lord help with that as well. So first, the cure. The cure. This is interesting. Paul starts with the cure in chapter one. I'm going to pick up in verse 16. And I did create um, slides for us this morning, but somehow in my weakness, I did not get them to Ed. So if you have chapter one, we're going to spend the whole morning pretty much in chapter one of Romans. So I'll keep calling us back to the verses. If you have a Bible with you, that'd be great if you could get it open right now. There might be some Bibles and chairs in front of you. Ed, I apologize. But you can focus more on the message this morning than following up. So we're in chapter one of Romans. We're going to stay in chapter one of Romans. I'll be referring to some other passages, but by and large, we'll be in one the whole time. So Paul says in Romans 1, 16 and 17, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of or from, as the NIV translates it better, I think, for in it the righteousness from God is revealed, from faith for faith, As it is written, the one who is righteous by faith shall live. Paul starts the book of Romans by announcing a cure, like I did in my little analogy. And I think this is a beautiful thing, even if it does strike us as illogical in its sequence. Who's excited about a cure if you don't know there's a disease? But I, this is my my estimate Spiritually, I think that in God's heart, he wants to present, knowing where we're going in Romans 1, he wants to present, even if briefly, the cure, the the good news before he explains the disease, the bad news. Paul's going to expand on this cure deeply for chapters 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. But even at the very front here, the Lord wants us to know before we hear very bad news, that the bad news is not the goal of his writing. God has come to bring a cure that rescues us and reconciles us and heals us and restores us. 
And he wants, to hear, he wants us to know that at the outside. He wants us to know that's why he's bringing the news of this disease. And this cure begins with the announcement of a gospel, which simply means in Greek, good news. The message that is, he says, the power of salvation. What Paul is saying here is that this message about this person, Jesus Christ, when someone comes to believe that this is true, and they put their confidence in it, the truth about Jesus, and they, they put their dependence of their heart on him to do what he says he did and to be who he says he is. He says, when someone believes this message, it saves them. It gives power for salvation. No matter who they are, he says, Jew or Gentile, which in our vernacular, if we translate that out to today, epistemologically, like if we try to understand what he's getting at, Paul is saying, God doesn't care if you're a man or you're a woman or you're a Russian or a Ugandan or a Korean or whether you're rich or whether you're poor or whether you're educated or whether you're not, the gospel comes to everyone who receives it. The gospel saves because God wants you to be saved. And Paul is very concerned that we understand how it saves. He says the gospel saves because it contains something in its DNA that is life-saving. He says the gospel gives us a righteousness, a righteousness from God, a righteousness from God that feels kind of cold and legalistic language to say, you know, that's how God saves us. He doesn't say God saves you because the gospel contains God's love. Well, it does contains God's love. But God is a God of justice. He's a God of fairness and equity. And if we understand the disease, which we'll talk about soon, we need to understand that what God must present in the cure is not just love for us, which he has, but he must give us a righteousness. God gives people who do not have a righteousness or deserve it or, or haven't earned it. He gives them a righteousness. This is legal language. This is the, the language of a law court verdict. God is saying that I will give you through the gospel of my son, a verdict of righteous in my courtroom. And this verdict means that the person who receives it is decreed before God and the universe and Satan and themselves and everyone around them, this person is decreed blameless before God, free from all wrongdoing, free from all guilt, free from all legitimate shame and blame. They are counted before God as perfectly righteous. This righteous verdict does not come by our righteousness. It comes from God. This is life-saving and hope-giving news when understood and reflected on and, and continually nourished, from, nourished by. God will tell us in the bad news of Romans 1 that our moral performance does not deserve a righteous verdict. So we must have it from God and God gives it to us. But how does God do this? 
He does it through his son. And we'll see this as we close today. As you know, most of you know, his son takes our unrighteousness on himself and receives the due penalty for it. And then God confers on us a righteous verdict. Your record is cleared. Your, your, your debt is paid. These are law languages. These are law phrases. How do we get it? Paul says. He says we get it by faith. He says receive it by faith. In verse 16 and 17, we see that we cannot earn it. We simply depend on God for it. This is what makes it possible to be, I mean, this is logically necessary. If I said I'm going to give you a righteous standing before God from me, it's not going to be your righteous standing, but it's going to be from me, from God, if I was God. And then I said, but you got to earn it. You got to be righteous enough to get it. That wouldn't make any sense, right? It's the whole point. If I'm going to give you a righteousness from me and, and not something you don't have to earn, well, it, it can't be something you have to work for. And that's exactly the beauty of faith. Faith is simply depending on God to do and be what he says he will do and be for you. And so through faith, through depending on God, through relying on him to be and do for us before holiness, before justice, he gives us a free gift in his courtroom of righteousness. And then Paul adds that just to secure this down, to lock this truth down, he says that this righteousness in 17, verse 17, says it's from faith to faith. It's from faith to faith. This phrase likely means that from beginning to end, from start to finish, our righteousness is from God. Always, not from ourselves. And it always comes to us from faith to faith, from beginning to end, through our depending on him for it and never from ourselves. Brothers and sisters, the good news I need to hear every day, often throughout the day, the good news that you need to hear every day, often throughout the day, is that though I might have a wonderful day serving the Lord, loving him and others, the next day I might have a terrible day of not serving the Lord, full of selfishness and failure. And in either case, your righteousness, my righteousness does not change because it doesn't come from me. It's ours by faith, by depending, by trusting in him for it, by believing on him for it and not ourselves. And that is true when you first come to Christ. And that is true 70 years later when you're still walking with Christ. From faith to faith, from beginning to end, this righteousness is a free gift from God, not your own that he gives you, that you must depend on. Now, the disease. Why do we need this? We talked a little bit about it, but Paul's gonna do a very deep dive. We need this because of a disease, and this disease is called God's wrath on mankind for our unrighteousness. It's a long phrase. It's longer than ledonicea or COVID or tuberculosis. But it's important that both parts of this phrase come to us. The disease is hard to hear, hard to swallow, jarring. But here is the disease. God's wrath on mankind 
for our unrighteousness. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We need a righteousness from God because we need to be saved from the wrath of God. Paul says God's wrath in verse 18 is even now being revealed. It's now being shown. So we're not right here in verse one or in chapter one talking simply about the punishment of God on the, on the, on the day of judgment. We're not talking about meeting with God after you die to hear the verdict over your life. No, Paul's saying even now, and Paul will talk about that in chapter two, absolutely. But he's saying even now, God's wrath is being seen. It's being experienced by mankind. We think about the word wrath. If you're like me, before I even came to the Bible, that just, that word sounded so out of control. It sounded so unpleasant. It sounded unjust. It sounded unrighteous. Wrath sounds, there's a movie when I was nine years old called The Wrath of Khan. And that's probably how I began to really conceive of what this word meant, The Wrath of Khan. It's called Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Anybody see that movie? It's like two people. Come on. Some of you people are lying. Oh, Jess. You guys. I remember now. Okay, Jacob. All right, so now you're starting to come clean. We talked about being honest in here. But the, the, the guy, Ricardo Montalban, it's an amazing movie. If you, it's just an incredible movie, by the way. But it's so good. I'm not ashamed. So, but the guy's a nut. The, the, the guy, Khan, the character, he's just an angry, compassionless, horrible, evil man. And he's really angry. That's not what God's like. That's not his wrath. I've talked before about the picture of Danny Knight, the basketball coach, throwing chairs across the, the basketball floor because he's so angry at the ref's call, you know, picks up chairs. <laughs> Those are the ideas, Khan and Coach Knight, that comes into mind when we think about wrath. That's not God. J.A. Packer says that God's wrath is a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. It is not capricious. That means unduly angry. It is not selfish, like so much human anger. It is judicial, in that wrath is always the act of a judge meeting out justice. Jerry Bridges says, God's wrath arises from his intense, settled hatred of all sin and is the intangible expression of his inflexible determination to punish it. God's wrath is his justice in action, rendering to everyone his just due, which because of our sin is always judgment. This is unpleasant news. But I really do believe that the unpleasantness of this fuels the beauty of the gospel. The elegance, the rightness, and the death-conquering power of God's solution. 
But it's hard because what you're hearing is that the most frightening thing about sin is not simply how evil it is, which it is. Selfishness is evil. Oppression is evil. But you're hearing that there is, no, the most frightening thing is that there's a God who actively responds to it with anger. And that just feels hopeless. But Paul wants us to understand this. He's trying to be honest. Remember, he's trying to talk about a disease so that we will embrace a cure. He has a cure for this. But he's saying, and this cure, this cure is from God. God is the one explaining these things. I don't want to just say it's Paul. It's God himself saying, listen, you need to understand. I love you. I want you to have the cure, human race. But I'm angry with you. I'm, I have judgment against you. And here's another surprising kind of countercultural aspect of this wrath. God is angry, Paul tells us, first and foremost and primarily with how we have treated him. When I think of God being angry, I think, well, he's mad at me because of how I'm neglecting my wife or my kids or the church or how I'm treating my wife or my kids or the church or my extended family or my neighbor. God says, listen, no, no, no. The thing I'm, I'm, thing I'm, thing we gotta deal with here the thing that's got you in most trouble before the bar of real justice is how you have treated me. And that just doesn't, you know, God's making a big deal of God. Is he arrogant? Is he full of pride? Is he puffed up? No, God's unashamed. This is, this is the key issue. This is the source of all the other issues, how you're treating me. And he says, how you've treated me, human race, is that you've suppressed the truth about me. You've closed your eyes to me. Verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them. God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, verse 20, his, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they're without excuse. Clearly perceived. David sings in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Their voice goes out into all the earth. And Isaiah 6, the angels circle around Yahweh, and they cry out in the heavenly temple, the earthly temple, it's not clear, but they're crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. So the heavens cry out, the heavens cry out, God is glorious. The skies proclaim God is glorious. Every sunset, every full moon, Every storm, every mountain, the whole earth, every river and ocean cries out, God is glorious. And yet, here we are in 2023, by the millions upon millions looking at the universe and the world and the human body, and we say, I don't know. It's beautiful. I have no idea. Just, I guess, just happened. People argue about it. Who knows? 
And God says, no, 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 no. It's clearly perceived. I have clearly shown you my eternal power and divine nature, human race. God says, you know you did not make yourself. Come now, you know it. You know you're not the source of you. Don't play games, you know it. You know intuitively that nothing comes from nothing. You know it. I made you to be a reasonable creature. And even in your brokenness, you know nothing comes from nothing. You don't take a look at a watch and say, it's amazing how that just happened. All the intricate parts that move together and depend on each other. Wow, cool how that just happened. Every galaxy, every system, every life form is incredibly more complex than a wristwatch. You know deep down that all this comes from a creator. You know deep down that the universe is full of order and purpose. You know that every moment of every millisecond of all reality is a miracle. As I was preparing this and thinking about this, I just, I just, I just took a moment in my office, you know, and just tried to like stop and just be. Do you ever do that? Just stop and just be and just realize like, it's a miracle. I'm conscious. I am a person. I'm a being. I'm aware. I'm in a universe with air and Look at my hands. Look at your hands. You have skin and under the skin is veins and next to the veins are tendons and muscles and bones that all work perfectly together. It's poetry. It's beauty. It's elegance. It's incredible. And you don't have, it, that doesn't even touch it in terms of how complex and ordered these systems are, these molecules, these cells that have factories in them that reproduce and replicate and self-heal. They're incredible machines. Bill Gates said that the human genetic system is more complex and greater than any program for any computer in the universe, ever. It's all happening every moment. It's all being sustained. So maybe you can't do this, maybe it's a little weird, but, but just take a moment, let's just take a few seconds and just be and just realize, I'm sustained right now. I exist, I'm held together. This air, this room, my body, like, I didn't come up with this. Can you just feel that? Just the, the you didn't come up with this-ness of existence? Every moment belongs to him. Paul says humanity as a race are accountable to God for this reality. In verse 21 he says, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Deep in our heart, our conscience knows that our behavior, that our thoughts, that our deeds, that our greatest purpose is to live a life of honor 
And as we understand that God is the source and that we are not the source, we understand that we should live thankfully to him and to whom every person owes every breath. But as a race, and and by the way, this becomes murkier and murkier as we get sucked into sin, as we get sucked into our brokenness. But but as a race, Paul is speaking generally of humankind, starting with Adam and Eve, our first parents. We yield to the desire to deny the truth about God and turn from our obligation to live lives of honor and thankfulness to him, to live as his image bearers. And we long to be free from that. And in essence, we we take upon ourselves the right to live as our own creator. And in order to do that, in order to, to marginalize and push aside our obligation to live lives of honor and thankfulness to God and to live our own way, we must deny the rightful creator. But, but here, here's the problem. When you turn away from the only true light that there is, just when you turn away or try to cover or smash or turn off the only true light there is, what happens after you do that? You can't see anything else correctly anymore. When you turn from or turn off the only true light there is, everything around you begins to become darkness. So if there is a God, if he is the true source of all things, and if he is the true source of all truth, if we turn from him, if we, if we cover his light, what happens to everything else around us? It becomes darker. Everything else becomes hard to see. Everything else, we, become, we start to become blind to the reality around us. And that's exactly what Paul ha- says happens when we turn from God. He says in verse 21, they became futile in their thinking. Their fuel, foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And Paul's talking contemporarily of, his, of what he saw among the Greeks and the Egyptians and what he saw among the peoples of his past and ancient times. But it still works. It's still actually still happening in many cultures and in many different ways in our own. This is the idea of idolatry, of raising up gods for ourselves after we reject the true God. And here's the dynamic. Here's how this happens, Paul says. We know we're not the source. We know we're not our own creator. We know that we're dependent. We know intuitively that we need a source, that we need something outside of ourselves to depend on. And Paul says that when we deny and we unjustly reject the true source, we're left with a sense of lostness that we have to fix. We're left with a sense of, we need to be tethered to something because we know we're not the source. We know we're not self-dependent. Intuitively, we know this. And so we make up our own sources for life, for food, for health, for children, for peace, for hope, for our future, so that our darkened minds, which have lost touch with the reality, the real source, can find some comfort in false sources, false dependables, 
That's the dynamic of adultery. And throughout history, we've seen this happen again and again. This idolatrous shift from the true source to making up other sources because we, I mean, isn't it interesting too when you think about like what's going on with, with like Batman? Like, man, I love, I flippin' love Batman. I've always loved Batman. The majesty of Batman. The glory of Batman. He just looks so awesome. And he's so awesome. And he's always right. And he's, he's just dark, but he's good. And I mean, the Christopher Nolan movies, it's like, man, something happens when he puts on that outfit where he looks like a bat. Dude, you look like a bat now. Awesome. Before you looked like a man who could build bridges and skyscrapers and incredible weapons and who could heal bodies because you're, you know, because your brain is, you, you can create medicines and, but now you look like a bat. Awesome. Because now you can live in caves and sleep upside down and poop over everything and bite people and get them infected sometimes. And you can freak out when the lights go on and scurry away because you're a bat and not just a man. Awesome. How is that an upgrade from the image of God? <laughs> like, I mean, really, like Spider-Man. I wasn't afraid of you, but now you're like a spider that I can squ- I mean, I know because they get powers and stuff. Well, Batman doesn't have powers. But my point is that we, we trade the image of God, which we're made in, for like a bat. <laughs> you know, and they really have done this. I mean, worshiping bats and dogs and beetles and putting our hope in these things. I, I, I don't know how much that's worth, so I'm going to get off that train really quick. That was not in my notes. But, but throughout history, this idolatrous thing, it, it, it takes different forms. In Moses' day, and by the way, that was cool because several of you who were sleeping, when I started saying bat repetitively, you woke up. You got, so I got you back in. All right. But, but follow me here. In Moses' day, the Egyptians worshipped the sun and the river and beetles and dogs and stuff like that. That, that sounds ridiculous to us in the West. Albert Einstein, brilliant. Maybe the smartest person that we've ever known has lived. For Albert Einstein, what I, what I would believe and speculate are his, like we all have, idolatrous resistance to the true creator. This led Albert to introduce, this is absolutely true, he admitted it. He said it was the worst thing he ever did in his scientific career. He introduced a mathematical falsehood into his equation of the existence of the universe in order to push away the massive evidence that was falling upon him and the scientific community in the early 20th century that the universe did actually have a beginning contrary to everything that they had believed for the last hundred years. And this created a massive problem for the scientific community because if the universe has a beginning, it's intuitively obvious to them that it has a creator. And many scientists around this time, or at least several that I've heard and read about, they were very frank. We don't want this. This is really uncomfortable for us because if we, if we actually scientifically see and admit that the universe had a beginning, we know we have to have a starter. We have to have a cause to all this. But if we can just believe that the universe always existed, always was, we're in the clear. And so young Albert, who was a brilliant scientist and starting a brilliant career, his... <laughs> theories were needing to be falsely 
infected with this idea, this cosmological constant, so that the universe could just have existed on its own. And eventually he saw that was not possible. And he gave up on that and through what he saw in the heavens, which were declaring God's glory. That there is a creator, that there is a God. So, having shown our unrighteous desire to push God away and bring us and engender God's just anger for not treating him, honoring him, thanking him with our lives, not living according to his goodness and call, Paul tells us what the effects of this wrath are. So again, now Paul is moving in verse 24 from our rejection of God to how God responds to our rejection of God. And this is where the road just continues to get harder. And for some of us, weirder. Here's what Paul says. The effects of turning from God are upon God. Here's how God responds to our pushing him away and rejecting him. Therefore, Verse 24, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God. They're insolent. Stubbornly hard, angry. They're haughty, Paul says, boastful. They in, they're inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish. Listen to this, this, this triad here, verse 31. Faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give up approval, but give approval to those who practice them. I, I want you to think about a few remarkable things in this section. First, everyone is in this picture to some degree. We're all here, all of us. Paul starts this section with sexual immorality. He moves to homosexuality. And I, 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 this is such a difficult topic. 
I want to talk about this sensitive issue and why Paul does this soon. I'm hoping to do this next Sunday, that we'll spend a little bit extra time in this issue of sexual issues because it's so sensitive. It's so culturally relevant for us. I, I can barely think of a, a family that doesn't have someone struggling with same-sex attraction or an extended family member. Certainly my family and my extended family, this, this issue is real, heartbreaking, so difficult, so easy for us to move to the left or the right in wrong ways on. It has to be dealt with with compassion and honesty. So I want to take more time. If, if, you're, uh, if you're affected by this, I just want you to know that whether yourself or someone you love, that God cares about you more than you think, more than you understand, And I, I hope, by God's grace next week, to help us think about this compassionately and honestly without shying away from the truth of God's word. But everyone is here. We're all here in this picture. You may not be engaging in sexual sins, but there is a tent that includes all of us. And by the way, I think all of our sexuality is broken and all people But we're all here, coveting, envying what's not ours, longing and being consumed with anger because we don't have what someone else has. We aren't like what someone else is like. And so we turn to selfishness. We turn to bitterness. We turn to anger. We turn to a self-righteous, I'm owed it. Lying and deceiving, shading the truth, talking about others in unkind ways gossiping and mocking. That's in this list of God's judgment upon humanity for turning from him. Being arrogant, heartless, simply, simply heartless, simply not caring, simply not caring. There's no one who escapes this corrupt list in this list of corruptions in some form. And these may seem like small things to us. Well, I'm not a murderer. I'm just kind of heartless. I never killed anybody. I just said a bunch of bad things about them behind their back. This breaks God's heart. It's so different than the image that we were made to be. It's so different than Jesus Christ, who's the picture of what we were supposed to be. But the secondly, I want you to note that this is the first time in this chapter that we see God's response. Up until now, it's all been about how man has treated God. But starting in verse 24, we see God's response. And three times, Paul says the same. This is when I said it was weird and strange for us. Paul says the same thing in verse 24, 26, and 28. He says this about all these things that, that we do that are wrong. He says, God gave them up. Verse 24, God gave them up. Verse 26, he gave them up. Verse 28, he gave them up. God gave them up. God gave them up. God's response to mankind's turning from God is to release man over to his own sinful desires. He gave them up. He handed them over. This, this is scary, scary stuff. This is like your problem is much bigger than you thought. Your problem you thought was how cruddy you are. Do you know that how cruddy you are is a function of God handing you over to your cruddiness? 
You, you, don't, you not only have your own issues to deal with, you have a God who's angry for, at you for rejecting him and now he's, he's handing you over to that crud. That's awful. We see this word handed them over used in 1 Corinthians 12. Paul says, if I hand over my body to be burned or where Judas decides to portray Judas or where Judas decides to betray Jesus to the Jewish authorities, Matthew 26, 15. What will you give me if I hand him over to you? Do you see what's happening in, in both these phrases is this intentionality. I am going to hand Jesus over to you. I'm going to hand, intentionally hand Jesus over to you. Where Paul says, if I hand over my body to be burned, I make a conscious decision to give my body over to something else. So there's a real scariness to this. It's not just something that just happens as a natural consequence of us. It is and it isn't. Doug Moose says this. He says, this is a judge who hands over a prisoner to the punishment of his crime. This is a judge who hands over a prisoner to the punishment his crime has earned. God hands over the sinner to the terrible cycle of ever-increasing sin. Now, that is one of the hardest things, I think, in Scripture. James 1 tells us this, though. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. Don't we all want God to be that God who never tempts us to evil, who, who can't do evil? James goes on. No, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, his own desire. So whatever God does to hand us over to the jailer of our, of our increasing sin, he does it righteously. I don't know how he does that. He does it righteously because it's an act of his righteous judgment. I don't know exactly how to answer this and I've read different takes on it, but it, it seems clear at a minimal that what God does is he seems to intentionally withdraw any and all restraining graces that keep us from imprisoning ourselves deeper into sin. And he does it in order we would be judged. We deserve that punishment. Of he, it's like we're saying, God, we don't want you, we don't want you, we want you. And finally he just says, okay, off you go, away from me. Think about someone who's an addict. And over here is a room of cocaine, they're addicted to cocaine, and there's a door that is locked and they want that room. And you're saying, no, 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 no. That is gonna hurt you. That is gonna, gonna be bad for you. It's gonna wreck your life. Don't, don't come with me, be with me. I will help you. And, the, and, and the, you, the addict says, no, I don't want you. I don't want you. And you say, no, don't do it. Please don't. And the addict says, no, I want this. I don't want you. And the, and the, the person says, okay. You get what you deserve. I'm gonna stop keeping you from this wrong thing that you want and I'm gonna take my key and unlock that door. Go on and you go on. I think that's a picture of what's going on here and it's awful. It is not mercy. Though I do think that in the end we'll see in Romans that God has a plan 
that we would so understand, that we would be hopefully woken up to how bad things have gotten that we would turn to him. I, I think that's what you see in the Gospels, where Jesus, Jesus says, man, people who understand how hopeless their lives are, when they get to that place and they really see it, blessed are they. And they stop pretending. But this is God's judgment for rejecting man. He gives us over to our own sinful hearts. The ultimate corruption is so thorough in Paul's picture that people no longer are able to even feel ashamed anymore. And they don't just feel ashamed. They don't just not feel shame for what they're doing wrong. They actually begin to approve and celebrate what they're doing. Their sin. They, Paul says in 32, they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Even though people know deep down that sins that they're committing are wrong and deserve punishment, they proudly commend the sin to others. Isn't it amazing to think that 150 years ago we had states championing slavery as a right of the American citizen? We had a right to this this glorious industry of slavery that, that, would, that would create progress and create industry and keep America strong. Millions of people said amen to that. Millions of people who professed Christ said amen to that. Let's preserve this institution that's made our nation strong and great and not give up slavery. We can't give it up. It's so good. We will die to keep our blessed right to slavery. Millions of people did that. And don't think you would necessarily be any different without God's grace. How can God, how can we not call God patient? Even in the midst of his judgment, he is patient with America. He's patient with the world. 60 million unborn children. Let me tell you, no, I believe that, that these, these are souls. They're, they're real children. But even if you are a, a pro-abortion, you have no proof that that is not a living soul. You have no proof. You don't create souls. You don't understand spirits and souls and consciousness. You have no idea if that little beating heart has a soul, has a life. You don't know. But, but, but the abortionist, the, the pro-abortion is willing to say, it's okay to kill it though. Who would go out into a parking lot filled with 500 cars with a shotgun and say, I don't know if there are people in there or not, but it's okay for me to just blast through the windows. Maybe there's people, but maybe there's not. I don't know. So it's okay for me to just shoot through the windows. That's what abortion is. Best case, that's the best case scenario. People who do not know if that's really a living being saying, I don't know, but it's okay, I'll kill it. It's going to be inconvenient for me. Whatever's going in there, I don't want it. And don't think you would be any different or I would be any different apart from God's grace. There are people who will probably die for that right, who will be in other ways more compassionate than you. We're all, forgive me, we're all jacked up. All of us. Take a scroll through Twitter and see what so many of us are rejoicing in and laughing at and how we communicate with those we disagree with. 
and tell me God is not patient and that man does not have a disease. If we will not accept God who is good and just and loving, we will not get goodness and love and justice. Paul is giving us the general picture of humanity without God's grace, without God's grace. It doesn't mean that every heart or every society is as bad as it can be. It's not because God is gracious and he's patient. It doesn't mean that the, the only way that God treats humanity is to bring judgment and punishment. No, because he's patient, even to those who spurn him. So there's much grace that Paul's not talking about that's in this picture. He'll talk about it in chapter two. But Paul's giving us the general progression and state of humanity without the gospel from God's perspective. And this dynamic still plays out today. If we will not accept reality, we will unravel. If we will not accept reality, God who is God, who is the author of life, the creator of all things, to whom is owed honor and lives of thankfulness, if we will not accept that reality, we will unravel. If we will smash the only true light in the room, everything will become dark. If we don't want God who is the source of all goodness and love and justice, we cannot expect to have lasting goodness and love and justice. But here's the scary thing and what makes the gospel so awesome. And I'm I'm landing this plane. So please try to hang in there. This is a long one, I'm sorry. Here is what makes this predicament so, this disease so deadly and the cure so beautiful. God's word tells us that if God's righteous wrath is not turned away from us for our rejection of God, then God will ensure that we do not have lasting love and goodness and justice. Let me say that again because it's complicated, but listen to it because it's understandable. God's word tells us that if his righteous wrath is not turned away from us for our rejection of him, then God in his judgment will ensure that we do not have love, goodness, and justice. Because that's him. And so we must have a cure for our disease that starts with the problem of his wrath. He has opened that door And we want that crack, that cocaine. We want it. And he opened that door because he was angry. And because we deserve that door to be opened because we wanted it. We need God to shut that, to pull us out and to shut that door and to lock it. We need God to drag us out of that room and to shut that door and to lock it so that we can't keep going in there over and over again to our ultimate destruction. We need God to act. We can't. We're, we, we, we have, and this is what he does. We must have a cure for our disease that solves God's wrath first. And if God's wrath is solved, then everything else will be solved. If that light turns on and becomes impregnable, you can't destroy it, you can't break it, we can't help but begin to see reality again the way we're supposed to. And this is what the gospel does. We have a cure in Jesus Christ that forever 
forever and ever forgives and erases our record of God rejection. He just forgives us of rejecting him. He says, you rejected me, I'm gonna forgive you. And I'm gonna do it justly because I'll judge myself for your rejection of me. I'll judge myself for your rejection of me. So I'll get to be just and I'll get to forgive you. We have a cure that forever forgives, forever forgives and erases our record of giving in to our sinful cravings. He says, all all that secondary stuff that I gave you over to that you did wrong because you deserved it, I'll forgive you for all of that. I will forgive you. I will cancel the record of all that stuff. I'll be judged for it so I can be just and forgive you. We have a cure that forever forgives and erases our record of sins against each other. God says, all the justice you deserve for hurting each other and being selfish, I'll forgive you for all of that. All of it. I'll be judged for it. I'll be judged for it. We have a cure that turns God's wrath completely away from us forever because there's no reason for us to be, for him to be angry anymore because Jesus took all of his, because God took all of his own anger on himself. And we have a cure that gives us a righteousness before God forever, a righteous standing that can't be met with wrath. It is not just to impose wrath and anger on a righteous person. It's wrong. It's unjust. So when God says, Michael, you're righteous in my sight now. And then Michael screws up tomorrow. God says, I can't be wrathful towards you. I can't judge you because you're righteous in my sight. My son has paid for what you do tomorrow, what you do next month, what you do next year. So even though you fail again and again, you get up and then you fail again, I'm just never going to put you back in that cycle where there's no way out anymore. Now, you can get stuck in habits. You could start to backslide, but I'm going to pull you out because I'm not judicially angry. I'm not judging you anymore for your sin. I judge myself for your sin. So I'm going to keep pulling you out. That's how we start to drift. We all start to drift away. And then suddenly, like a week, a month, six months later, we find ourselves getting spiritually healthy again. And and hoping in Jesus again after we've kind of drifted. How does that happen? It happens because God has already decided, I'm not going to be angry with you anymore. When you start to go back to that stuff, I'm not going to hand you over to it anymore. I'll be patient with you. I'll let you get scuffed up a bit so you see it's worthless and dumb and hurts. But I'm going to pull you back. I'm going to use that to pull you back to me and heal you again. This is the gospel. Takes away God's wrath. Takes away our offense. Gives us a righteous standing before him. So let's, let's embrace the disease and celebrate the cure. Let's not pretend that God doesn't care how we treat him. He cares all the time. It's the most important thing about us, how we treat God, how we treat the source of everything we have, how we treat the person who is himself love, who is himself justice. It's the most important thing about us. Let's not pretend also that we're better than people who reject God. We're not better than them. They just haven't received the mercy we've received yet. They need it, but we're not better. No, let's admit that our disease is terrible and agree with God. It's as bad as he says, and let's not stop there. Let's keep going to where he wants us to again and again, the cure that we have, that he wants you to depend on, that he wants you to believe on. Jesus Christ is your cure. He is your righteousness. He is your forgiveness. And God gave him to you because he loves you. He loves you. As angry as he is with the world, he loves the world.
So let's celebrate this cure we have, Jesus Christ, our righteousness, our forgiveness.